And this is John K. Wilson and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Undergraduate tuition in the University of Wisconsin system will increase about 5% on average this fall following a vote today by the UW Board of Regents. It's the first tuition hike since the legislature froze tuition in 2013, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Before the Regents' meeting at the UW Stout campus, System President Jay Rothman said the increase is necessary to ensure that UW campuses remain economically viable. Republicans in the legislature have introduced a bill that would limit the Regents' ability to raise tuition in the future. College of Letters and Science Dean Eric Wilcox will serve as interim provost for the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Chancellor Jennifer Manukin announced today. Wilcox is filling in after the previous provost, John Carl Schulze, accepted a post as president at the University of Oregon. Wilcox was a postdoctoral fellow with the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Socorro, New Mexico, before coming to Madison to be an astronomy lecturer. He eventually went on to join the UW faculty as an assistant professor. He will serve until the permanent, permanent provost is selected from four finalists. That appointment is expected to take place late in summer. UW's Day of the Badger fundraiser has brought over $1.5 million for the Madison campus. Channel 3000 reports that the event on Tuesday gathered over 6,200 pledged gifts from more than 100 different university programs. The Wisconsin Foundation and Alumni Association Director Papelka Masnick said they are grateful for the funds that will help students accomplish their goals. The Freedom From Religion Foundation has called on the Internal Revenue Service to investigate a flyer from a Cottage Grove church that the foundation claims is illegal electioneering. In the flyer, the pastor of St. Patrick's Catholic Church urged parishioners to quote, for the salvation of your soul, do not vote for her in the Supreme Court race on April 4th, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The flyer dated March 26 does not refer to either candidate by the, in the race by name, but the candidates are Janet Protasiewicz, a woman, and Daniel Kelly, a man. Churches are exempt from paying taxes, but are banned from engaging in political activity. Foundation attorney Christopher Line has asked the IRS to strip, strip the church of its tax-exempt status. Church pastor Brian Dooley declined to comment on the flyer when contacted by the State Journal. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway has raised more than three times as much money as opponent Gloria Reyes. According to campaign finance reports, the incumbent mayor raised around $75,000 since mid-February, while Reyes has only raised about $24,000. Reports show that 82% of campaign donations to the Rhodes-Conway campaign came from Wisconsin, 97% of donations to Reyes come, came from Wisconsin. In total, Rhodes-Conway's campaign has collected nearly $115,000, while Reyes has amassed around $60,000. The Madison Community Foundation is giving $75,000 to Rooted, a local charitable organization that helps communities with food and land management. The funds will help the organization grow its staff and community reach. Deputy Director of South Madison Programs, Hetty Rudd, said, quote, it's, it's, it's exciting to be able to share the creativity of our programs. Rooted's 2023 outdoor programs resume in late spring at the Troy Kids Youth Farm. 
And with less than a week to go before the spring general election, over 25,000 absentee ballots have been returned to the city of Madison clerk's office. That number includes the 10,443 early in-person ballots that have been cast in Madison so far. In all, the clerk's office issued around 36,000 absentee ballots this election cycle. This Sunday, April 2nd, will be the last day you can vote early here in Madison. In accordance with state law, there will be no voter registration on either April 1st or 2nd. If you still need to register, you can register at your polling place on Election Day next Tuesday. And now, on to today's top stories. Republican state legislatures say Dane County judges demonstrated biases in cases where the legislature is a party. A newly introduced bill seeks to randomize court venues to reduce the role of Dane County judges, but critics remain skeptical. WORT reporter Faye Parks has the story. Republican state legislators have introduced a bill that would randomize the court in cases where the legislature is a party. The proposal would apply whether the legislature is a plaintiff or a defendant in the case, and it would severely limit the number of cases Dane County Court currently hears involving the legislature. Dane County judges frequently handle such cases by virtue of being the location of Wisconsin state government. The state GOP argues that these 17 judges, some appointed by former Governor Scott Walker, cannot be trusted to maintain their objectivity. Under the proposal, the county clerk of courts would notify the state Supreme Court each time an action is filed against or on behalf of the legislature. Then, the state Supreme Court would randomly select another court for that case to be heard. Currently, the plaintiff has the power to select the venue for cases in which the sole defendant is the state government. This Republican-led bill was signed into law in 2011, when, before, Dane County was the default. The bill in question was proposed by Representative David Steffen, a Republican from Howard, and Senator Jesse James, a Republican from Altoona. Both were unavailable for comment. Recently, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has pointed to rulings from several Dane County Circuit Court judges as an attempt to, quote, make Republican lawmakers look bad, unquote. However, Judges Mario White, Valerie Bailey Wren, and Rhonda Lanford have all recently ruled against liberal interests. Critics of the bill say the proposal is flawed, from inception to its execution if passed. Matt Rothschild is the executive director of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, currently the only organization registered on the bill in opposition. He says he's skeptical about the bill's motives. It's a transparent ploy by the Republicans to try to find uh, more favorable judges than those in Dane County when they're doing something wrong or doing something illegal or when their policies are being challenged in court. Logistics of the proposal could be challenging. For example, a case involving the legislature could require attorneys to drive across the state, jacking up travel costs in the process. The proposal also does not outline how the selection process would be randomized. According to Rothschild, this lack of clarity is a concern. Well, vagueness in any bill is bad policymaking and will lead to more litigation in any event. It just costs us all more money, so I wish they'd define their terms a little bit better. The bill was introduced to the State Assembly last Friday and to the State Senate two weeks ago. Both have been referred to committee, where a scheduled public hearing will be the next step. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. 
nations around the world have received another stark warning about what lies ahead for climate change and how much time is available for meaningful action. In Wisconsin, one group hopes curiosity among students will result in more concern among adults. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. A new report warns that the window is quickly closing to prevent the most harmful effects of climate change. As global leaders face pressure to act, efforts continue to educate Wisconsin families. Last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said countries have to come together quickly to achieve deep reductions in greenhouse gas emissions to secure a livable planet for all. Rebecca Borkowski is with the Wisconsin Association for Environmental Education, which supports teachers and students in learning about these issues. She says they sometimes avoid using words like climate change around parents to avoid political tension. But that's changing. I think it's a point where affiliates like ours and the national network are just going to have to take more action and become more direct in our conversations here. As part of their effort to get more climate education in schools, her group is trying to get more adults to become engaged with the issue. That includes hosting online discussions and prompting elected officials and political candidates to talk about climate change, including those running in Wisconsin's high-profile state Supreme Court race. A recent survey of teachers from the North American Association for Environmental Education found that 56% of respondents' students have brought up climate change on their own in the classroom. Megan Giefer chairs the Wisconsin Chapter's Advocacy Committee and says getting kids to pay more attention isn't a concern. She suggests it's harder when adults who have lived through changing seasons their whole lives might feel that a cold and snowy winter is enough to think there isn't a threat. And so a lot of people will brush it off and say, well, that's the Midwest, that's Wisconsin, but it's really not what we're supposed to be having. A 2021 statewide report noted that Wisconsin winters are warming more rapidly than summers. Meanwhile, the National Teacher Survey says a lack of formal curriculum and an unclear mandate are among the reasons why school districts haven't made climate change education a priority. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Last year, a group of farmers filed a lawsuit against the, against the small town of Lake Town, Wisconsin, in Polk County, saying that local regulations against a nearby CAFO could not be enforced. Now the nearby town of Eureka is looking to join Lake Town to argue on behalf of local government's ability to regulate CAFOs. Dan Gustafson is an attorney with Midwest Environmental Advocates and is representing Eureka's drive to join the lawsuit. He spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout earlier today to go over the case. So this case sort of centers around the towns of Lake Town and Eureka, which is up in northwest Wisconsin. What's what's going on in these towns, and uh, what did they try to do to regulate these CAFOs? Sure. So a couple of years back, um, the towns recognized that there was a large um, hog farm that was planned in the area uh, by a company. It's been the, an application has been filed by a company called Cumberland LLC. And it was actually six local towns in Polk and Burnett counties that were concerned about the potential impacts of large agricultural facilities, often referred to as factory farms, or as you've said, concentrated animal feeding operations, which is abbreviated as CAFO. And so there, there was concern about the potential impact from CAFOs in the region, and the six towns decided to take local action and they formed 
a group of towns in a they had an intergovernmental agreement that allowed the towns to work together and study the issue and then this partnership of the six towns that each had representation on this committee that studied CAFOs and the potential negative impacts of them. And then that partnership committee came back to the town boards with uh, proposed findings of fact and a model ordinance that could be adopted by the towns. Five of the six towns adopted similar ordinances. There are some differences between the, the ordinances passed by each town. They each have local findings of fact sections so that there's you know, information about the population of the town and the land use and that sort of thing that varies from one to another. And then there are some small differences, substantive differences in the provisions of the ordinance. But essentially, our client, the town of Eureka, has an ordinance that except in two small respects is identical to the one that was passed by the town of Lake Town. And back in um, early 2022, after Lake Town adopted their ordinance, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce has a litigation center that is filed a notice of claim, which is a prerequisite to filing a lawsuit against a municipality. And they had seven local uh, residents that they represented. They filed the notice of claim. The, the town said that, you know, denied the notice of claim essentially. And, and so the then uh, WMC's litigation center brought suit on behalf of five local residents, five of those original seven. They are essentially the owners of two local farms, neither of which are subject to Lake Town's ordinance because they're not large enough to be defined as a CAFO under the, under the local ordinance. But they claimed that as taxpayers in the town, they were going to have to foot the bill for enforcing this ordinance and um, that at some point in the future, they might want to grow the, uh, their own operations to a size that would be subject to the ordinance. And so they brought suit um, with WMC's representation to invalidate the ordinance. And their claim is that the state statute that regulates the siting and expansion of CAFOs preempts any local regulation in this area. Midwest Environmental Advocates has been following agricultural issues, including uh, the regulation and permitting of CAFOs for quite some time. My colleague, Adam Bosco, uh, has been working on these issues for years and was aware of this litigation. And so we were keeping an eye on it. And after the lawsuit was filed by the town of or by the by WMC and just I'll note that there are two attorneys from Minneapolis who are representing the town of Lake Town pro bono along with a local counsel from a firm in Wisconsin and you know we were concerned and kind of were were keep keeping tabs on this and you know it's our opinion that if the town of Lake Town's ordinance is invalidated by this case. It will likely have an impact on the other towns in the area that passed similar ordinances. Although a, a circuit court decision wouldn't necessarily have the force of law to invalidate these ordinances, they're so similar that if, if, if the courts were to invalidate Lake Town's ordinance, 
And then in particular, if it's upheld on appeal to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court, that it would likely invalidate the neighboring ordinances as well. And so we approached the town of Eureka, which is right next door to Lake Town. And I should say that the town of Lake Town has under a thousand residents. And the town of Eureka is only about 1,750 residents. So these are small communities in Northwest Wisconsin who are trying to protect their residents and their property values. And we approached the town of Eureka and offered to represent them on a pro bono basis. They retained us, and we've now filed a motion to intervene in the lawsuit on behalf of the town of Eureka. And now, what are these ordinances that these towns uh, enacted? So the ordinances don't govern the siting or expansion of CAFOs like the state statute does. They govern the operations of these uh, facilities. So they require any facility that is above the threshold in the ordinance. And I'll say that the DNR defines a CAFO as 1,000 or more animal units, which is roughly equivalent to 700 dairy cows or 2,500 hogs, depending on the species of animal, the, the number of animal units varies. So uh, the DNR's definition of CAFO is 1,000 animal units. The two ordinances passed by the town of Eureka and the town of Lake Town say that for new CAFOs, the ordinance is, is effective for any farm with over 700 animal units. For existing facilities that are expanding, the threshold is 1,000 animal units are the same as the, the state statute. But they don't govern the siting process or the expansion process explicitly. They apply to the operations of these, of these uh, facilities. And so they require farms that are subject to the ordinance to file an application and provide a lot of information to the local municipality about things like waste management. You know, these, these facilities typically spread liquid manure at very high rates on neighboring fields, sometimes fields they own, sometimes fields that they acquire rights to spread on from third parties. So there's the, the spreading of manure is a big issue. Obviously, odor can be a big issue. Disease, um, how they dispose of animals that, that die at the facility. There's all kinds of issues that have potential to impact the community. And, you know, it's, it's often the case that these facilities have a significant effect on the local property values. And so it's natural that the residents of the town and the town governments are concerned about these impacts and they want to have some say in regulating the impact. So they charge an application fee. They require the facilities to fill out an application and provide information about all of these things and then to take financial responsibility if there are negative impacts to the town. How did you, with Midwest Environmental Advocates, get involved, and uh, what what is sort of your stance on this issue? Well, we generally think that local governments should have the ability to regulate facilities that have an impact on the local environment at the local level. So, you know, we we have represented local municipalities in other in other kinds of cases, whether you know it's a concern about about um, non-metallic mining or 
you know, other issues that, uh, that are, have impacts at the local level. But in general, we support the right of local governments to regulate environmental issues that have an impact on their, their communities. And so that was really our interest here. Most town governments don't have extensive budgets for funding litigation. And so when they're targeted by the largest industrial lobbying organization in the state to try to invalidate their ordinances, they likely can't spend the kind of money it takes to hire lawyers to defend those ordinances. And so we offered to, to represent the town of Eureka pro bono in this matter because we're interested in the issues the case presents. And now looking at this in sort of with sort of a macro lens, are there some larger implications in this case if this case were to rule in favor of the WMC? Yeah, I mean, if again, if if the court in this case were to hold that the livestock facility siting law, which is uh, found in Wisconsin statute section 93.90, if they find that the livestock facility siting law preempts all local regulation of CAFOs, and if that decision were upheld by the appellate courts, it would essentially prevent any municipality in Wisconsin from from regulating these facilities. I've been talking with Dan Gustafson, an attorney with Midwest Environmental Advocates, about the case looking to defend the rights of local governments to regulate CAFOs in their community. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Nate. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with my co-host, John K. Wilson. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, feature contributor Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to talk about open records and open government. With the spring general election now just days away, Kamenick and Chester talk about what election records you are and aren't entitled to on this week's Archival Transparency Talk. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined, as is tradition, on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how y'all holding up this week? Hey, Joan, I'm doing good, and I'm ready for next week. Why are you ready for next week, Tom? I'm going to get out there, and I'm going to go vote. Heck yeah. All right, I'm also going to vote. You know, voting, it's one of the main charges to us as residents of this democracy. It's like, go vote, pay your taxes, Always use your turn signal when you're when you're turning in a direction. Those are the primary charges of those of us who live in a democracy. So today we're going to have an election themed episode about what election records you are entitled to. Let's take this from a local and a state level at the local level. What records can I get if I want them? Yeah, so just a bit on structure of how this works, your local municipal clerks, this is your towns, your village and your city. They handle the elections, they run them in their local town halls and handle the wards and everything. But that all gets coordinated up one level at the county. So county clerks actually kind of collect all that together and report it. 
So sometimes you may be looking for records from the county clerk. Sometimes you may be looking for them for the municipal clerk. But if they're good clerks, they'll tell you which one you should be going to if you've asked the wrong place. <laughs> so it may not be surprising, but you cannot get the actual ballots. You do not get to know how individual voters voted. We have secret elections in this state, uh, but you can get lots of other things from your local clerks, like the poll books, the big things that everybody signed. You can go look at that. There are forms that they need to fill out, like inspector statements, inspectors of elections, and absentee ballot logs. You can also get copies of individual voter registration forms and the envelopes that were sent back with absentee ballots in them. So not the absentee ballots themselves, but you can see the envelopes and see who signed them and see where they came from. So you too can conduct your own election investigation. But why why would somebody want access to these, you know, jokes aside, why would I want inspector statements, for example? To see if everything is kosher and make sure and get some confidence of everything was done properly and uh, those are filed on a, on a regular basis. You can take a look at uh, things like absentee ballot logs and look at the numbers and make sure numbers of votes match up. Um, I haven't done a lot of this myself, but I've represented a few clients who have. And, and it's detailed and it can be complex, but there's interesting information out there. Mm-hmm. And then moving up the ladder, if you want to get access to stuff from the state, From what I've heard, it gets a little bit more difficult. You got to go through the folks at the Wisconsin Elections Commission, correct? That would be the bipartisan commission that has recently come under fire. Yeah. So the WEC is what replaced the GAB, the Government Accountability Board, if people know their history. Uh, The Government Accountability Board handled both ethics and elections. Now there is a separate Ethics Commission, which I basically never hear about in the news, and the Elections Commission, which gets a lot more attention. So this is the state agency you want to go to for information about voting. And they they put out a whole bunch of free statistical information, getting total numbers of registered voters, votes cast within a municipality or certain ward. You can get all that stuff for free. If you want registration records, this is the voter rolls themselves, you're going to pay anywhere from $30 for a small request to up to $12,500 for the whole kit and caboodle. And then you've also got voter roll cleanup records. What's a what's a cleanup record, Tom? So the Wisconsin Election Commission is responsible for keeping the rolls clean. If somebody dies, they need to be removed. If somebody moves out of the state, they need to be removed. Uh, but also they double check things like same day registrations. Wisconsin does allow does allow that. Not every state does, but there's a lot of steps that the WEC follows on a regular basis to check out the validity of those same-day registrations. So so those kind of cleanup records are available too. There are plenty of uh, non-candidate organizations. They run all the ads that instead of saying vote for or vote against somebody, they say, call your representative and tell them how terrible of a job they're doing. (laughs) Officially say vote for or vote against, uh, but those, those groups are all still registered. And you know, WAC is a commission, and that means that its members hold meetings open publicly. So that is something else you can watch or go listen to. And let's not forget, as as is true with any government board or agency or whatever, not only can you request the records themselves, you can also request things like communications, internal memos, emails, you know, if they're really feeling generous, they may even be able to search their text. But as we've talked about uh, in the past on this, that gets a little bit hairy. (laughs) Yes, it does. That's been an issue lately. Uh, But you're absolutely right that 
this is a government agency. It does work. They have desks and people are at them or people are working from home too, but there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes and you can get a glimpse into that through records. Like you said, internal communications or memos are a great way to learn what they're doing besides the obvious uh, stuff that gets put up publicly themselves. And then the final thing I wanted to talk about for this episode was, you know, we got we got the election coming up here in a few days. I wanted to know if I could figure out anything about the candidates who are running, to which I was greeted by a all caps no in the prep doc. Why is that, Tom? Why, why can I get certain documents about elected officials, but not candidates for those offices? Because a campaign is not a government entity. It is, a campaign or the candidate is this private person or private organization who is trying to become a government official. And they're not there yet, so their records aren't open to the public. However, two things. One is, even for an incumbent who is already a government official, they need to keep their campaign completely firewalled off from their government work. They cannot campaign on state time. That means that what they're doing on state time should not look anything like uh, what their campaign is doing. So, you know, theoretically, you should not be seeing any campaigning when you request their government official records. And if you found some, congratulations, you may have just uncovered a crime. <laughs> Go get yourself a beer. You uncovered a crime, then report it to the appropriate authorities. However, we can get copies of campaign statements and certain campaign documentation. Yeah, campaigns have to file documents on a regular basis with the Wisconsin Elections Commission. So you can go there to get these. And these are the financial forms, the things that tell tell the public, uh, here are our sources of revenue, everybody who's donated to us, and here's how we've spent all of our money. And you can get other things like the declarations of candidacy, so the forms they fill out to become a candidate, and nomination papers. So you can see who all signed saying, I want this person on the ballot. Yeah. And I know a lot of those are available on like the Election Commission's website. But boy, oh boy, if you can, in your first try, navigate the Elections Commission's website and find candidate documents on your first go without somebody showing you through, whoever does that is a puzzle master in my book. I had to have it shown to me like four times before I finally got it. Anyway. Yeah, I'm the same way where I've done it before and gone to look at them, but I can never remember. And it always takes me a while. All right, we have come to the end of our time for this week's episode, for which I've been joined, as always, on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks so much for joining me this week. It's always a pleasure, Jonah. So everybody go vote and remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. It's in the end of March, and while fishing has certainly slowed down in the Madison area, it hasn't gone away entirely. This week on Fishy Business, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg prepare for trout season proper and take a break from fishing in Madison Lakes. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hansberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it is the uh, end of March here, so the 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 lakes around here. Now, nah, uh, from what I've been hearing, not too much happening around there. But let's just start off with looking at the lakes here. What what have you been hearing throughout the the many lakes here in Dane County? Well, you're right, Nate. It's uh, kind of a slow time of year. The ice has, you know, just come off most of the lake. Still a little bit of ice on Lake Mendota. But um, so, you know, the water's cold. The fish aren't moving around too much. Uh, that being said, there is uh, some folks fishing up here to the 113 Bridge up here on the north side of town, uh, getting some walleyes and a few crappies out of there. 
And then there's a decent crappie bite down on uh, Monona Bay and the triangles there just off John Nolan Drive. So, you know, there's still some fishing to be had around town, but uh, a lot of folks headed to the different rivers and, and doing some trout fishing uh, this time of year. And we'll definitely get to those rivers and those trout, of course, in uh, just a, a moment here. But like I said, end of March, which means that your fishing license going to expire, what is it, tomorrow night at midnight, Pat? That's right. Yep. Tomorrow night at midnight, March 31st, every year, uh, the fishing license expires. So, you know, you can get them easy enough online. Just uh, go to the DNR's website. They got an easy, easy website there. You can get them. Otherwise, if you're uh, technologically challenged, uh, happy to help folks out here in the shop, too. And now let's head on over to some of the rivers. Now, I, I was talking before we started recording. I was planning on going out a little bit out east of here tomorrow to do some fishing. Unfortunately, weather's not really looking like it's going to be uh, cooperating with me for that. But, you know, by Sunday, I think it's supposed to be really, really nice. So let's let's take a look at some rivers. Let's start off with the Wisconsin River. What's happening on the Wisconsin River? Well, walleyes are the big thing up there right now. So, And a lot of those fish are... Heading upstream on the Wisconsin River, they run into a lot of dams, so they get backed up there. So the Prairie du Sac Dam, which is the closest one here to Madison, is um, a very popular spot. Get a lot of folks coming through the shop heading up that way, uh, fishing walleyes and saugers backed up at at the Prairie du Sac Dam. But that's not to say uh, the Wisconsin Dells Dam, Castle Rock Lake Dam, Petenwell Dam, and basically every dam all the way up the river is a great place to try to get into some good walleye action this time of year. Now let's start making our way west a little bit and head on over to the Yahara. Hearing anything out of the Yahara River these days? You know, not much. Uh, There are walleyes in the Yahara, and they do run up the river just like on the Wisconsin River. So if I was, uh, you know, going to be fishing the Yahara, I'd I'd look at some of the dams. Uh, The Stoughton Dam comes to mind. Uh, The the dam that uh, comes out of Lake Kiganza, uh, is another uh, pretty safe bet, Wabisa Dam. Anywhere that there's water that, uh, you know, fish c- can't uh, get up further upstream is going to hold, um, likely hold some walleyes this time of year. And now continuing to move west a little bit, let's hit the, the Rock River. What's been happening there? Well, the Rock River is also a great walleye spot. A lot of folks headed down there uh, this time of year. Uh, also, you know, it's a great walleye spot. Um, the Jefferson Dam is a great spot to look at. Um, they, they do get fish in the Fort Atkinson area and also uh, down to Indian Fort. There's a dam down there. So a lot of good opportunities on the Rock River as well. And now let's move over to some, some trout fishing. What's, what's been happening? Let's just start off with what's been happening with all the, the trout streams out there. Well, now that most of the snow is gone from the area, the temperatures on a lot of the area trout streams are going to be a lot more stable, which will make the fishing a lot more consistent. Uh, this time of year, there's a lot of insect activities, bugs coming off. And um, I was actually out with my son on Sunday. Uh, we were west of here near Richland Center, and we found uh, trout that were rising to uh, midges that were hatching off. A midge is a, a small insect like a, in the mosquito family, actually, but they don't have the mouth parts. Anyway, uh, we found rising fish, and we caught a few uh, other um, insects that are hatching this time of year are blue-winged olives and some caddis. Uh, but for, if, you're, if you're fishing dry flies, it's mostly a smaller fly uh, time of year. Uh, but also if you're running spinning gear, you know, a lot of your deeper pools are good spots to check out with like a Rapala or maybe a little tube jig, something that can get you down there to where those fish are because they're, they're not quite, you know, as active as they will be here in another couple of weeks. 
And that's a great segue there, Pat. Taking a look, like, trout season officially opens here in in uh, about a month now, uh, the first, first Saturday of May. Taking a look at trout fishing right now and, let's say, in about a month from now, what's, what's sort of the big differences between what we should be doing when we're going for trout in uh, this sort of weird transition of seasons? Well, if you're looking for trout this time of year, it's really, um, like, I, like I mentioned, the water temperatures tend to be a little cooler so the fish aren't quite as active, so you're just going to want to slow down your presentation. Um, of course, this time of year, it, with the trout regulations, it is um, no live bait is allowed to be used, and all fish need to be immediately released. Of course, after May 6th, I believe, is when the opener is. Um, they, you can use live bait, and you can, uh, you know, running spinners and stuff when that water gets warmer. Something that the trout will be a little more willing to chase down can be really effective, and then all summer long can run those those same lures can be really great all right well that's gonna just about do it here for today pat again it's a little bit of a slower time out there right now but you know there there are still definitely fish to be catching out there so and once once this uh weather gets past us uh, i think on saturday it's supposed to be gone uh should be should be beautiful day on sunday so plenty of chances to get out there and catch some fish but before we go any any final parting advice for us here today pat no, I guess you sort of alluded to it. I would, I'd say just hold on. You know, there's some beautiful weather right around the corner, and that's going to only improve the fishing, so a lot to look forward to this spring. Well, I've been talking with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want just by calling one easy number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you again so much for talking with me, and we'll catch you next uh, next time. Thanks, Nate. Always a pleasure. Good luck out there. Eric Ford is the gallery preparator for the Center for Design and Material Culture at UW-Madison. He's also collector of stories. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, Ford tells feature contributor Jonifer Fields about the object he uses to keep some of his favorite stories close to him daily. Objects that we show in in our gallery, they need, you know, the proper exhibition uh, standards. They have to be in, in the best light, if you will. What other concerns do you have? Because I know it can be a laundry list depending on, because we're right now in the textile gallery. You primarily work for the textile gallery at the CDMC. So what is it, it that textiles need in particular that we may not find in other galleries? Uh, well, textiles are uh, really uh, precious objects, and we've we have a huge collection of uh, what like twenty three thousand objects, I believe our whole collection is, and they all require specific needs in terms of exhibition prep. They need specific lighting needs. Uh, some need covered and protected. Light is a really big factor, uh, so it doesn't degrade any of the materials. So lighting needs are very important. And we also have to even pay attention to how long it is after we paint our walls to install our objects. Just based on off-gassing, uh, paint has to sit for a month before we can put any historic object in it, uh, just based on like the gas levels that come off of paint. I'm looking at you like you're crazy because I have never heard that before in my life. Mm -hmm. I paint something and a minute it's dry. Absolutely, yeah. We have to wait a full month uh, before we can install any historic object, especially like inside vitrines, uh, anywhere where that gas is trapped. Uh, we have to ventilate our galleries for a really long time um, before we can put 
any historic work in there. And, and speaking of paint, the whole reason why we're talking about this is that I have this fascination with the evidence of work, like the hand of the maker. And like the biggest evidence of your work is on your body. So talk to me about your britches, Eric. Absolutely. Uh, it's funny because we talked about this. Uh, you randomly brought up uh, my overalls, which is um, it's kind of a staple of, of my identity here. I, I mean, I just like overalls in, in general, but they've kind of become part of my image. Um, I wear, you know, the same painter white overalls all the time, every day, you know, and they show each and every bit of work I do in some capacity from the random paint drop to the rip that happened three years ago when I was moving that piece of metal that cut my leg, you know. Think of your, your overalls, as I like to call them britches. Mm -hmm. Think of your britches as a document of how all this came to be, because they're white with blues and reds and yeah. patches and sewing. And so talk to me about the history of this garment using the, the stains or the, I shouldn't say the stains, but the colors as the markers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's evidence all over. I mean, my painter whites are not really white. They're uh, pretty much every color I've used on pretty much any wall I've painted in the past three years since I got them. Like I can point, you know, on this seam on my left leg, that's a little bit of spray foam from my studio back when I was in grad school. And I also have a blood stain that's just above my pocket. I tend to store things in my pockets. So very often do I have like streaks going into my pockets, especially the front pocket. Uh, the front pocket is also kind of a catch-all for all of like my finger wiping. Like I wipe my hands on my overalls, you know. I use my stomach almost like a, a press board and just kind of smear it all over, you know. And it's so funny because my partner will ask me and mention like, oh, it looks like you painted something blue today because that's the new, more, most vibrant color on my pants. And I did, you know. So it's, it's interesting watching and like seeing people catch on to what I'm doing just based on what I'm wearing. And all the rips and everything, I, I am, a, am a fixer, I'm a maker, um, and I have attachments to objects, uh, very much so. So like the importance of like fixing my pants so that I can continue to wear them so I don't have to get rid of them and hurt my own feelings doing that are really important, but they're getting kind of bad. <laughs> so then if I point to this color red, what is that red from? That's from painting the stripe in the, uh, the Ruth Davis Design Gallery um, in the federal home uh, section of the uh, exhibition. And it's just, we painted some stripes uh, to demarcate uh, locations that separate the space. And that is a, let's see, I think it's actually called Federal Red. Uh, so I can even name the, name the color on my pants. Okay, let me see if I can, this is funny because I'm staring at your pants. Okay, what is this? Is that a red or a pink? That is a red. It's washed out. Uh, so it has all the evidence of me scraping there. So like I can even, I mean, if you want some ASMR, you know, I have, there's so much paint like built up on this corners, like these two corners of my pockets that I could actually peel it back and find evidence of painting you know, that I did a few years ago. And that red used to be more vibrant, like the one on my leg you were just talking about. But over time, I, you know, keep scraping, you know, white paint or spackle or whatever I'm using. It always goes in the same spot. So it's kind of like layering that evidence. 
of that work. So you talked, Eric, you, you said that you have an attachment to objects. You have an attachment to these overalls, these britches. They've got patch marks. They got repairs. When do you call it? And then what happens to them when you call? I can see this is distressing you. Your eyes are getting it smaller. Me. It kills me to think that I might have to throw them away, but I don't. Uh, I actually keep a lot of my favorite clothing, even though they're tattered and worn. All the overalls I've ever bought and, and worn that have been decommissioned sit in my bottom shelf in my dresser. Sometimes I take them out and look at them. I admire them because I really, I mean, my existence is building stories and, you know, I'm, I'm a worker at heart, you know, so being able to relive like my experiences through the things I wear is kind of a fascinating thing. And I don't know that I would ever retire them fully, depending on what I'm doing. I wonder if you don't retire them, if you can see them having another life as another object, or is it important for you, Eric, to keep them intact? Is it important for you to be able to put them back on again and feel what you went through in creating the pants, uh, the britches? Creating the pants. I think that's the name of our segment. <laughs> <laughs> creating the pants. Creating the pants. Um, I, I, don't, I have thought about mounting them, you know, and showing them as kind of evidence of work, as kind of a performative, you know, past performance that has taken place over a couple of years. But I quite like the idea of being able to kind of... There's, a, there's an experience from like opening the drawer and admiring and like putting them on and be like, yeah, they definitely still are exactly how I remember, you know, all the clumps between my legs that I sewed together and they've ripped and re-sewn and all that is still there. And uh, I always put my foot through a, a rip in my <laughs> knee and make the, make the rip bigger naturally. And yeah, I would... I really like the idea of, of keeping objects, uh, especially clothing that I can put back on. Like I still have a shirt that I, I bought probably 15 years ago that I've done pretty much everything in and it's virtually see-through now and it's got more holes than Swiss cheese and uh, I can't get rid of it. My partner says like, when are you gonna throw that shirt away? And I was like, never. And if you do it without asking me, uh, I won't be very happy. <laughs> I'm just very attached to it, you know? It's like one of the comfiest shirts I ever wore, you know? And these are some of my favorite overalls I've ever owned, you know? Just based on how much I've done in it, how much, how many stories they hold. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Field. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Miss Shali Pippen is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, John K. Wilson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Everyone have a good night.